0: This is Tech Refactored, a podcast in which we explore the ever-changing relationship between technology, society, and the law. I'm your host, Gus Horwitz, the Menard Director of the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center.
1: Our guest today is Blake Reed. My name is Blake Reed. I'm a clinical professor at Colorado Law, where I direct the Samuelson-Glushko Technology Law and Policy Clinic. Um, I'm one of the faculty directors at the Silicon Flatiron Center for Law, Technology, and Entrepreneurship.
0: In his teaching and research, he focuses on technology policy, telecommunications law, intellectual property, and disability law. Both he and the clinical students that he directs are regularly involved in work before state attorneys general, the Federal Communications Commission and other regulatory bodies.
1: I love teaching because it's an amazing way to get students engaged with the enterprise of using law to solve social problems that arise in the context of technology and and vice versa. My discussion with Blake focuses on a range of difficult media
0: regulation issues that we're facing today. We spend some time talking about recent social media legislation that states such as Florida and Texas have considered. This leads us to a discussion of a concept called common carriage, which Blake helps us to unpack. From there, we look at some of the legal challenges that these statutes are already facing in the courts and do a deep dive on some of the historical considerations of the idea of common carriage regulation. Our conversation then expands to consider contemporary First Amendment challenges and some of the difficulties that we face in trying to create a balanced media ecosystem, which may or may not even be possible. We finish our discussion by highlighting some of the work that Blake has been doing recently with his students at Colorado. Both you and I teach telecom law and a lot of tech-related stuff. I'm just going to be selfish and uh, try and steal your ideas here, Blake. Uh, (laughs) How do you uh, uh, think about teaching these classes and teaching in these fields?
1: Well, the thing I think about with telecom law, I, I think of the reaction that I had when I was a law student and I first heard about telecom law, which is that sounds boring. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think the first I heard about it was uh, I went to a conference. It was on like the intersection of uh, spectrum policy and water law. And I remember I sat in the audience and I was like, I what what is going on here? I thought I was doing technology. What 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 is what is going on here? And what I got to learn over the years of uh, of overcoming that that initial intuition is that there is this direct line between even the most technocratic, archaic, esoteric aspects of telecom law. What happens when you're allocating spectrum or making spectrum management decisions or deploying broadband or deploying physical infrastructure, making decisions about protocols and all of that kind of stuff, you can draw direct lines from that to all of the really serious social problems that people experience that involve the internet or just drag the internet in. So, I, you know, just for example, I started my class this last week talking about social media laws that are getting after political discrimination, abortion access, hate conduct. And I hope, you know, when we get to the end of teaching telecom that we can draw a line from decisions that we're making about spectrum management or about deploying internet architecture or about structuring protocols down at the kind of the bottom of the internet's layer stack up to these, you know, broader consuming social and cultural issues that are kind of consuming a lot of our our political oxygen. Yeah. And I mean, it's such a
0: tangible, visceral field once you get over the fact that it is so incredibly boring, because it's not boring at all. (laughs) I mean, uh, you can turn on the news or listen to the radio. Okay, we're already invoking telecommunications and regulation and all this stuff. But just lately, you will turn on the radio and hear news and information about the new 988 suicide prevention hotline. Yep. That is yep. telecom law. You hear about the digital divide, the bead program, a new broadband subsidy program, uh, $45 billion or $60 billion, depending on how you look at it. That's a major policy. You hear about Elon Musk and satellites. Well, Lots of telecom law there. You hear about airplanes not being able to land due to some interference issues. That's telecom law there and robocalls. Oh my. And then the social media issues, First Amendment issues. This is the opposite of boring. And it always strikes me. And I, I love uh, to hear your perspective on this. This is an intensely practical and practice oriented field, but it's also a deeply, deeply technical and theoretical field. Mm-hmm. I can't think of many fields that are simultaneously so everyday practice focused while also being so complex and deeply theoretical.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I, you know, the the technology, too, is always such a barrier, too. I remember it was for me, and I, I was a, a computer science major coming into this, but, you know, I didn't have experience with network engineering. I didn't have experience with, um, you know, how broadband networks functioned in a serious way. And so I think there's always this sort of wrestling between the deep technical expertise it takes to deploy these networks that we all rely on to do every facet of our lives, which, you know, the more you learn about them from a technical perspective are the, you know, as the saying goes, they're indistinguishable from magic, right? And they really are, right? When you get into how fiber works and how wireless transmission works, it's like the more you get into, you know, down into the physics of it, the more just like, it's it's amazing that this works at all. You know, I, I hear people in my life complain about it not working and I'm like, it's just a miracle that this stuff functions as reliably as it does. But yeah, I think it's interesting because you've got to meld as a practicing, you know, attorney in this space or as a professional, you know, maybe not an attorney in this space that understanding a workable, like, you know, facile understanding of the technology with... All of the social goals that we're trying to achieve, all of the business goals that participants in these ecosystems are trying to achieve. And there's always this kind of battle to shape the technology in one direction using legal skills and and in the other direction as the technology evolves as technologists change aspects of the technology to push back on the law and to make aspects of the law obsolete. And so I think it's that give and take between technologists and lawyers, and we could talk about economists, and we could talk about, you know, other disciplines that are involved in this. I think it's that give and take and that interchange and that interdisciplinary nature of the whole thing that makes it so interesting and practical at the same time. So this is a loaded question, perhaps, but which do you think
0: is the more fruitful endeavor, law students to learn a bit of technology, or technologists to learn a bit of law and policy?
1: Um, well, I'm gonna, I, in law professor form, like evade the the hypothetical a little bit. Uh, you know, I I, I actually think lawyers learning a little bit of technology and technologists learning a little bit of law can be really dangerous because, I, I, and I say this with someone as a background in both of these things, you know, the orientation of technologists is to think of the world in a pretty deterministic way, right? To think we've got machines that work a particular way. If you learn, you know, how to how to program computers, you test your programs by running them and making sure they run as expected. And you can see the system. Right, you can see exactly how it works, and uh, you know a lot of the experience that I have working with technologists, and some, you know, some of it is when I when I started learning the law was sort of thinking that the law works that way too, right? And what lawyers learn, of course, is that the law is incredibly malleable. It's the social construct. It depends on what the judge had for breakfast or what the political whims of the legislature are, or whatever else. And I think the danger on the Other side is lawyers assuming that technology can work that way as well, and that it's, you know, not like bound by the constraints of physics, for example, um, that kind of thing. So I actually think the most important thing is for lawyers and technologists that are engaged in the interdisciplinary work of telecommunications as an example, but technology as an enterprise more broadly, to understand a little bit about the fundamental aspects of how the other thing works, right? To understand as a technologist, yeah, there's a lot of social construction going on when you're doing law and you can't extrapolate like one case to the rest of the world, right? Like it's not necessarily going to work out exactly the way you think it will. And likewise, as a lawyer to not sort of assume just because you want to will something into existence via law that the technology is necessarily capable of doing that. So I, I like uh, being pithy at times.
0: Law does not work like code and code cannot be treated like law.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, or, or I, I suppose we're, uh, we're we're contravening the the famous uh, Lessig axiom on on that front. Yeah, I mean, I also think there's some appeal to that, right the the notion that law and code have these sort of similar structures and that they're both fundamentally, you know, I'm thinking about the work of like Julie Cohen and, and others are fundamentally working on society and fundamentally have these interactions with people and that there are some some real similarities there to to Plum. And I, I you know, I think that's true, right? I think that's the fun of interdisciplinarity is that mm-hmm. you can see the parallels between the things. But yeah, I think it's it's dangerous to do that superficially if that makes any sense. Yep, absolutely. So let's uh, change gears a bit. And what are some
0: things that you're thinking about or working on nowadays?
1: One thing that I see bubbling through legislatures and courts right now um, is, uh, is is social media laws or call it platform law as a field and sort of trying to structure the conduct and decision making and maybe the business structure of platforms, i.e. Google and Facebook and Apple and Amazon, et cetera. Microsoft should, should be on that list as firms. Um, and what are the laws that bear on that? And then how are the courts going to react to them, both here in the U.S. and and worldwide as well? Um, And I think a couple of particularly interesting ones that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about are laws around deplatforming and the sort of mandated carriage of uh, of content, the mandated carriage of users. I think those are uh, particularly interesting. Another one I've been paying attention to for the last several weeks is the JCPA, the Journalism Competition and Preservation. Act. And it's kind of dual mechanisms of carriage and payment as a sort of subtext to negotiations between platforms and news publishers. I think that's really interesting as we think about the sort of future of journalism and the future of truth. Uh, Lots going on these days. We're just scratching the surface. Let's uh, start social media. I I know uh,
0: Florida, Texas have done some interesting stuff and some courts have done some interesting (laughs) stuff
1: back. Can you uh, uh, lay the groundwork uh, for us? Where this goes back to for me, well, maybe let's start with the statutes themselves. So there are state legislatures in these, you know, unconceitedly un- conservative uh, states that are passing laws that, in various ways and with various mechanics, compel platforms to carry the content of certain kinds of users or certain kinds of content um, that prevent uh, those platforms from taking down content that. Prevent- them from taking down users, and that otherwise try to uh, sort of address how platforms might manipulate the uh, appearance of content. So let's call these carriage laws, or we could call them anti-deplatforming laws, or protecting the freedom of speech uh, against the uh, the power of the corporation, uh, or as Genevieve Lackier calls it, uh, the non-First Amendment law of free speech, sort of in in that tradition. And so those laws are kind of working their their way through the the courts. We have a big decision um, from the 11th Circuit in Net Choice v. v Florida. Um, and then we got a preview of the Supreme Court uh, weighing in um, in the sort of preliminary fight over Net Choice v. Paxton in, in Texas and got a got a very blistering dissent from from Justice Alito sort of previewing how the conservative wing of the court might think about these laws um, under the First Amendment. And then I guess one one last bit of foundation I would, I would lay is to say there's kind of the political backdrop of these, which we're talking about telecom roots of everything, right? I think the roots of these laws are a very sort of telecom thing. I think they actually spring out of the debate over net neutrality. And one of the arguments against net neutrality, which is, you know, a non-discrimination or a carriage obligation uh, on internet service providers, one of the sort of talking points against net neutrality um, when it was last really seriously being debated, in, you know, kind of 2017, was that it was missing regulatory parity with respect to the application layer platforms like Google, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, etc. And I think at first that was sort of a concern troll against net neutrality, right? It was sort of like, well, how can you treat the ISPs this way? Maybe the real problem is Facebook. Maybe the real problem is Twitter. And then that kind of got into the bloodstream stream in the Republican Party during the Trump era, and suddenly it started to turn into real policy, right? And suddenly it started to become, hey, not only maybe are these guys really the problem, but maybe this is a real problem. These platforms are biased against conservative speech, and we need to start thinking about remedies to go after it. So I think you can actually draw kind of a through line from the, the telecom roots of it uh, to, to where we are today, and now we have state legislatures doing all this stuff Yeah, so not uh, entirely
0: the direction I had thought that you were going to go, especially with the telecom routes. And I'll uh, come back to that in a moment. But the basic concern here is the social media platforms and other uh, platforms censoring online speech and in particular uh, coming out of the Trump uh, years censoring conservative speech. They took uh, the president of the United States off of the platform um, and we got platforms like Parler created um, that are promising, not actually doing this, but promising to be uh, censorship-free and anything-goes sort of
1: platforms. Which goes as far as their terms of service and then stops immediately because, of course, <laughs> they take lots of things down as well. But anyway.
0: Well, and uh, exactly. And the other platforms, the Twitters and the Facebooks of the world would say, yeah, and that's exactly what we're doing, too. We have our terms of service, our community uh, standards, policies, and I, I guess the two questions to explore, the, the First Amendment side of things, and that, that'll probably bring us to uh, discussing the the J.C.P.A. as well, but also the, the direction that I thought you were going to go, and I, I think maybe you were carefully avoiding using this word or phrase, common carriage. Um, right, the right, the right. idea that we have these things, question mark, called common carriers that need to take all comers. They can't discriminate based upon the nature of the passenger or the content of the speech, perhaps. And that's a traditional telecom sort of idea. And that there's this idea that these statutes arguably are trying to implement, saying, hey, platforms should be common carriers, too. They shouldn't be allowed to discriminate based upon uh, the characteristics of the users, including the viewpoints that they're expressing on these platforms. I'll throw it back to you, uh, in, in part with the question, were, were you trying to avoid the common carrier term in this context?
1: <laughs> Well, I I really wasn't trying to avoid it. And I actually think these questions kind of start from different places, but they end up in the same place. I think the answer to these questions are the same, um, which is at least when we're talking about platforms that carry speech. And so, you know, now we're talking about Google. We're talking about Facebook. We're talking about um, Apple and Amazon. We're talking about all these platforms that carry content that is generated, you know, in large part by other people other than the platforms. Um, you know, and so what are their sort of rights and duties and obligations that attach to the carriage or moderation of other people's content? But we can go back in the history of telecommunications law, and actually, we could go back much further to, you know, to the sort of pre-telecommunications law of grain elevators and ferries and trains and inns and so on and so forth. There's, there's a deep common law tradition uh, here, but I think it's worth just sort of cabining it to... Call it post-Civil War history of telecom law and think about the telegraph companies, right, the telephone companies as kind of the quintessential common carriers, but also, you know, ISPs fit into that, I think. You know, that's the the sort of whole debate about net neutrality is can we treat ISPs as common carriers? And then we also have the tradition of what we might call quasi-common carriers. So broadcast television, you know, we think about doctrines like the Fairness Doctrine, we think about cable television and the must-carry doctrine. We might also think about newspapers as a sort of failed common carrier. The, the famous uh, case of Miami Herald v. Tornillo, where Florida, of all <laughs> of all places, uh, tries to impose a, a right-to-reply obligation on newspapers that fails. But so I, I have a, a paper out on, on this topic. And one of the things I, I did, because this notion of what is a common carrier, uh, you know, is getting deployed as these new statutes that apply to social media are coming out. And you see the proponents sort of making this argument that, hey, these guys are common carriers, or we should be able to treat them as common carriers. And that means, you know, A, that they're obliged to carry all of the speech, it means that they cannot discriminate on various bases, and that it's consistent with the First Amendment to do that. And so what I tried to do is kind of unpack what is really going on in the history of common carriage law. And the, the short punchline that I reached is it's kind of conflating three questions. One is, what is a common carrier – Two, what is common carriage law? What are the rules of carriage? Is there some you know consistent notion of that? And three, when we apply common carriage rules to common carriers, what outcome comes out under the First Amendment? And my conclusion is that we actually don't have a coherent understanding of any of those three things, that actually what we end up getting in every case is we've got really inconsistent criteria for defining common carriers that often, you know, are they now? Natural monopolies, or do they enjoy sort of an anti-competitive advantage over their competitors, or do they hold themselves out as being common carriers? You know, there are various other criteria that folks have identified that just don't hold true for all common carriers, right? So we've treated plenty of non-monopoly carriers as common carriers, for example. Um, uh, you know, we also uh, have encountered folks who would like to hold themselves out as not being common carriers, who we want to demand that. They- they be common carriers, right? So pretty unsatisfying, um, you know, in terms of being able to identify common carriers. We also have a different range of rules, right, of carriage rules. So there are some that are like... You literally cannot discriminate against anyone or any kind of content for, for any reason at all. We kind of find that. And then we find lots of little exceptions, right? So some of the telegraph laws, for example, allowed exceptions for the news, right? So if you had urgent news to get across the telegraph, you could do so. Uh, you could sort of jump to the front of the line. Um, we have various debates about whether you're obliged to carry illegal content, for example, and what you need to know about it. and things get really. Weird weird when we start to get into the quasi-carriage laws like the Fairness Doctrine. I'm sure you know, Gus, as a, as a telecom law expert, the Fairness Doctrine is the is the wildest doctrine that I think the <laughs> United States government has ever come up with. It's the sort of elaborate idea for how to structure broadcast TV as this national civil discourse, right? And you sort of look at it and it's like, yeah, it kind of involves carriage, but it bears almost no resemblance to you know the laws that we've applied to the telephone companies or the telegraph companies. So I think why anyone cares about all of this is at the end of the day is you want to say, are these laws that we're trying to apply, are they consistent with the First Amendment? And what I think we end up seeing the courts do in every case is they say, well, what's the deal with this law as applied in this context, in this historical era? And we get lots of different answers to that question. Sometimes it sticks, you know, and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it sticks for very different reasons. And I think we're in a really new era now. So when we think about social media companies, I kind of think asking the question, are they common carriers, is kind of a meaningless question. Mm -hmm. Asking are these laws, common carriage laws, kind of a meaningless question. The real trick question we're trying to ask is, what does the First Amendment have to say about this moment? Yeah, I mean, we could
0: ask, what do telephones, hotels, grain silos uh, have in common? the answer is nothing other than that they're common carriers and
1: really and they carry the, the, things. Yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah. They're,
0: it's uh but by definition, you could almost say it's a category error to say, what is a common carrier or, or is this one? Um, and, I want to suss out two dimensions um, of your discussion and to to highlight and bring us back to uh, that fairness doctrine point uh, that you made. Uh, A lot of what we're thinking about with this common carriage idea and uh, all of these historical regulations, we can think of as being About purely competition or economic concerns or industrial regulation or organization sort of stuff. Sure. But when we turn to the speech and media context, we tend to be talking just about politics or bare knuckle politics, Mm. um, frankly. And if you look at the history of the, the fairness doctrine and media regulation in the pre internet era, It was used and abused by JFK and Richard Nixon, by both political parties to try and browbeat the television networks for their preferred political ends. And then we really saw an explosion of fairness doctrine related stuff after the fairness doctrine was not abolished but the fcc stopped enforcing in the 1980s because what did we see the explosion of am talk radio and in particular conservative talk radio so we saw 20 or 30 years of folks largely on the left calling for the fcc to start using the fairness doctrine again or congress to regulate conservative voices on am radio And now with social media, we're seeing primarily conservatives and conservative legislatures saying, hey, we need to regulate uh, social media because it's being used harmfully uh, to conservative political views. Um, So is this all just politics, I guess, is my question. And if so, what's the First Amendment point in all of this? And how should we think about this?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, one of the interesting things to me, so, I mean, I read a lot about the fairness doctrine and the kind of early days of the fairness doctrine. And I think we get too much of our understanding of the fairness doctrine from the sort of Reagan era tropes of, you know, it's politically abused, it's the government nanny state governing the radio, all of that kind of stuff. But I think if you go back to the early days of the, you know, the creation of the FCC in 1934 and what followed from the fairness doctrine, which evolved into the Mayflower case, Um, what, you know, what came out in their, their big sort of report about how to apply the Fairness Doctrine was this notion of the broadcast TV, like landscape and radio landscape was like this great American experiment, right? Like we had this magic new technology and there were a limited number of people that could use it without it collapsing on itself because interference would stop it. You know, so it's like, okay, the government has got to play some sort of role in structuring this. And what you see in the development of the early fairness doctrine cases, which go along with the development of licensing doctrine, right? Like, who are they going to give licenses to to speak? There's this real earnest interest. And I think it's on both sides. I think it's broadcasters and the FCC alike in sort of saying, we have got this public trust. We've got this valuable, you know, my, my former student, Jeff Wessling, is going to be mad at me calling this a valuable resource. But, you know, let's go with that for a second. We've got this really valuable resource that if we use it can fundamentally change how Americans talk to each other, how they understand what's going on, how they understand what's important. It's going to have this like really meaningful impact on discourse course, right? And I think what you saw in the early days of the Fairness Doctrine was broadcasters and the FCC pretty earnestly wrestling with like, well, how do we do this? How do we create this medium through which not everyone can speak? For sure, there's not enough time for broadcasters to cover every issue, to accommodate every voice, to talk about every single thing. But what do we do with that? How do we make fair decisions? How do we make sure that this doesn't get sort of captured for political ends or overt religious ends. You know, one of the early cases was about avoiding somebody who just wanted to, like, evangelize their religion on their channel, right? And, and the you know, everybody sort of comes in and says, no, that can't be what this is about, right? This is for everyone, right? And I think you see that continue into the civil rights era as folks are trying to use broadcasts for political advertising, and you see the sort of discrimination that happens against um, Black candidates in the South, for example, and the WLBT case. Um, So I think there's this root of the fairness doctrine that's like the government and industry like trying to do this grand experiment. And then you get the Reagan era stuff that you cite to where it all starts to fall apart and people start to realize, hey, we can kind of weaponize this for political ends, right? We can slide down the cliff on this and we can make this untenable and unworkable. And that's where we got, right? And that's where it's continued until now broadcast is slowly just being supplanted by other technologies. But yeah, I mean, there is politics at the bottom of it, but I don't think the goal was politics. I think the goal was trying to do something that transcended politics. And we just learned a lesson about how that can fail and be overtaken by other priorities. Yeah,
0: and you hit on, I think, what is the key challenge here, we learn to weaponize it. Yeah, Both sides have learned in the modern media era how to weaponize mass media, and that the latest iteration of this is really just the mis- and disinformation concerns that we're talking about today. And I'm going to just say, Blake, we're not going to solve this uh, in this discussion, but I think that you've articulated exactly the issue. This isn't a legal issue, uh, necessarily. It's not a, a law issue, it's interested groups have learned to weaponize our speech culture and the legal uh, framework that we have and there's a baby swimming around in that there bathwater. And I, I, the question is, can we save it? Um, and I'll, I'll leave it as, uh, I don't know, but uh, let's talk about what, one aspect of saving it, perhaps, uh, and turn to uh, the JCPA. And can you tell us a bit about what's going on here and the poor plight of local media?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, talk about the disruption of the poor local media, the broadcasters, right? For a long time, subsisted on revenue from advertising, particularly true in the newspaper industry and, you know, uh, obviously true to, to a degree in broadcast radio and television. Um, but as internet platforms, you know, I think most famously sort of Craigslist comes along and destroys the classified advertising ecosystem. Um, and then, you know, we get the more tailored, targeted, weaponized, manipulated, surveillance-fueled, whatever you want to call it, um, ecosystems that Google and Facebook have to offer, and suddenly they kind of own the advertising market. And so all the revenue that had previously flowed into sustaining local journalism is now going to these big internet platforms. And so the question, and this has been a question worldwide, is, well, what do we do about that? These platforms are making money hand over fist, and local journalism is dying. Shouldn't we figure out a way to effectuate some kind of wealth transfer from – where the money used to come from. Can't we like route the money spigot, you know, back over to where mm-hmm. it where it used to flow a little bit? Um, and maybe we can sort of make that happen. And kind of the first place that happened uh, was on a, in Australia and has now um, expanded to the United States. And so the tricky thing in the United States that I think folks are wrestling with now, we have this new law, the, the JCPA, which attempts to basically create the structure by which news publishers can band together, getting a carve out for antitrust law, which would normally prevent them from colluding in this way, and go negotiate with Facebook and Google for basically a cut of the revenue for access to their news articles. And we should say uh, that
0: this is currently proposed legislation, that this isn't uh, a law yet. Um, And my tea leaves reading, I don't think this stands much chance of passing, but uh, it, it yeah. nonetheless is uh, framing the discussion that we'll be having uh, for years to come and certainly upcoming discussions in Congress.
1: Yeah, that's right. I, I never know where to ballpark the chances of things in this Congress, right? It's uh, I, like with all these things, I think your initial impulse is is probably right here that this has some, some tough places to go. But in any case, I, I think this idea has some staying power, which is we ought to, as part of checking the dominance of these platforms be thinking about how to shift their revenue back to our flailing local journalism industry such as it is and and how do we go about doing that. The tricky bit in the United States is that basically the object of the negotiation between the publishers and the platforms is news articles, right? And we have real trouble under the First Amendment in the United States putting property barriers around the news, right? The news flows freely in this country under the First Amendment. And so we've got significant limitations in copyright law, for example, where things that you might not be able to do with a song or a movie or a novel or something like that, you can do with the news. There is much about the news that is unprotectable by copyright. There are many uses of news articles and the facts contained therein and the fruits of the reporting that emerge from journalism that you can do that you might not be able to do in other contexts in copyright. So that's one sort of problem. Problem, is what are they going to negotiate over because you know the news kind of wants to be free in this in this country and so the way they try and sort of get around that is they say well it's not copyright it's computer fraud and abuse law right you can gate access to the website and of course then the rejoinder there is google and facebook sort of say well fine we'll just stop carrying this stuff right we don't need news that much we have all sorts of things that people like to search for, we can let this go. And then the response to that from the JCPA is, well, maybe we can make you carry it, right? Maybe if you decide to stop carrying it, we're going to call that retaliation and we're going to make that a cause of action. The publishers really want
0: to have their content Not stolen, perhaps, but widely distributed. They
1: just want to get money in exchange for it. Well, and when the United States Copyright Office did a recent study on this, that's what the publisher said. They're like, are you kidding? Like, we can't, like, we rely on Google and Facebook to drive all the traffic to our sites. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. we're dead in the water if that doesn't happen. And so we end up in this bill as a sort of result of this that's like, we're trying not to do copyright law, but instead we do a carriage obligation and a payment obligation. Obligation, Right. And then this elaborate like negotiation scheme uh, with baseball style arbitration and all of that that goes over the top of it. And I think as people are kind of sleeping on this bill because it's one of the most profound sort of like you have to carry this and you have to pay for it sort of obligations. And I think in the canon mm-hmm. of common carriage obligations, I'm like, that's pretty novel. We haven't really seen much like that. There's some really novel First Amendment implications to that. But moreover, it leaves it at the bottom. Bottom, what are we going to do about funding and sustaining journalism if this mm-hmm. doesn't work? And that's a really hard and deep and, you know, nasty problem that I think you go back to the Fairness Doctrine, right? That's what we're trying to do with the Fairness Doctrine. We have a series of failed experiments in this country to sustain journalism that have occasionally worked and inevitably come to this sort of end. So it's interesting to see this law kind of taking shape. I need to put in a quick plug. So we're, we're talking to you, Blake,
0: in this week's episode, and Last week, we spoke with my colleague, Kyle Langbart, oh, yeah. and one of the things that we discussed was constitutionally, what can the government do to promote local media in, in a different sort of context, uh, more the government directly supporting local media. So these discussions uh, uh, dovetail nicely. And I, I want to add, one of the reasons I, I think this legislation doesn't stand much chance is because you have more economic, traditionally uh, antitrust focused folks like myself who look at it and say, wait, so you're enabling a cartel. You're. This is an exception to antitrust law. That's not good. And then you also look at who's weighing in on this. You have groups like EFF and Free Press. They're saying, wait a second, no, this is a bad law. Um, it, It doesn't go to the fundamental problems. There are other ways of dealing with these issues, which leaves the question then who supports it. And one of the truths with a lot of legislation like this is incumbent industry supports it. So the big media companies, the big publishers, the big news companies, they're more likely to support this. And it very likely would leave the smaller publishers out to dry. Because they're not going to control the outcomes of efforts that these big cartels allowed by the law to negotiate with the social media companies. The small companies aren't going to get much say in them, and they're not going to be able to form their own groups because they don't control the content that the social media companies are going to want to negotiate for nearly so much.
1: Well, it's... Yeah, it's, I mean, it's super funny there that no matter where you focus on this bill, there are problems, right? And I looked at it and I said, OK, the cartels, whatever, that's fine. But what are they negotiating over? How can they possibly be negotiating over this? But you're absolutely right. And I think this gets to one of the underlying kind of core dynamics that all the stuff we're talking about is getting after – which is the power of these platforms, right? The sort of concentration, um, the anti-competitive actions that they have taken in some places. And I think the interesting thing about what the JCPA does in sort of enabling this, you know, what you've labeled as kind of cartel behavior, it reminds me of that episode of The Simpsons where it's like they get an invasion of one kind of animal and then they let loose like a (laughs) swarm of a slightly bigger predator and then they eventually end up with, I think it's like gorillas like running all over the Town, like, because they needed to eat the snakes. It's kind of the same thing, right? It's like, maybe we can create a bigger cartel. And I think that goes to an underlying failure to. You know, enforce and you know to the extent necessary, modify antitrust law to deal with the sort of anti-competitive dynamics that are happening with the platforms. And you know, we could talk too about the American Innovation and Online Choice Act. I mean, there's a lot of like interleaving uh, sort of efforts to go after these problems, and we can't quite get our arms around all of them. It's uh, it's mm-hmm. a it's a challenging moment for sure.
0: Well, we are starting to come up on our time, but I uh, do want to finish up our discussion by just asking you, is there any work going on with your students, with the clinic that you would like to highlight? I know uh, one of the great pleasures of doing the sort of work that you do is getting to work with the students on a, a range of issues, and that's always good to hear about.
1: Yeah, um, a, a couple of things that really proud of our, our work on. Um, one, uh, my students have been working on the implementation of the Colorado Privacy Act, um, one of the many now seemingly uh, blooming all of the time uh, State level privacy laws. Um, the Colorado Attorney General is uh, working on implementing that. Um, my students have been doing some really, uh, you know, in my opinion, uh, of course I would say this, but I, I really think so um, fantastic work on trying to help inform the Attorney General about the vast array of kind of complex privacy scholarship and literature and concepts from around the world as the AG goes about implementing uh, Colorado's privacy law. So that's one. Um, the other one. I just mentioned really quickly our clinic does a ton of work on and I don't think this issue gets a ton of attention um, but the FCC has a ton of authority over the accessibility of communications and video technology Um, so next time you're watching a video uh, turn on the closed captions turn on the audio description um, and realize that all of the mechanics of the controls that are provided all of the closed captions all the audio description that are provided are often a result of policymaking and and rulemaking that the FCC does in that front. And uh, my students have been involved for the better part of the last decade working on those issues with uh, organizations representing people with disabilities before the FCC. So our work continues on that uh, on a lot of fronts. So really proud of that.
0: Blake. Thanks as always for taking the time to chat with me. I don't believe this was the first time we got you on the podcast. It won't be the last, but looking forward to continuing to think about and discuss these things with you and to uh, seeing what comes next for you and your work.
1: Thanks, guys. Really appreciate you having me and look forward to doing it again soon.
0: Tech Refactored is part of the Menard Governance and Technology Programming Series hosted by the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center. The NGTC is a partnership led by the College of Law in collaboration with the Colleges of Engineering, Business, and Journalism and Mass Communications at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Tech Refactored is hosted and executive produced by Gus Hurwitz. James Fleege is our producer. Additional production assistance is provided by the NGTC staff. You can find supplemental information for this episode at the links provided in the show notes. To stay up to date on what's happening with the Nebraska Governance and Technology Center, visit our website at ngtc.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNL NGTC.